He also said to the disciples, There is a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful again to be in your house. We praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this parable. While unusual, while difficult for many to understand, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it. Lord, speak to us, teach us this morning. Speak through me. And break the hearts of, of your people. For those in, in this room who are not followers of you, Lord, I pray that you would change their heart through your spirit this morning. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We want to pray for our country. Uh, this, this, the last several days have been very uh, uh, a lot of anger, a lot of uh, frustration, a lot of stress, a lot of concerns, a lot of fear. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to sustain this country, Lord. But I also pray that you would use your church, your people, to preach the gospel, to preach Christ crucified. And may that, Lord, be what changes people's hearts. May you change discontentment to contentment, not in material possessions or more freedom or more rights, but may that contentment happen only in the knowledge and the understanding that they have been redeemed by your Son. We pray, Lord, for those who are not with us because they are dealing with sickness or or traveling or working Lord, I pray you would be with them. We pray for our brothers and sisters that are online, that are watching us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them as well and pray that you would restore them to this congregation and to worshiping in person. Lord, we praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I've titled this uh, sermon, uh, A Lesson from a Criminal. A Lesson from a Criminal. And um, I want to talk a little bit here about a a criminal who is from the state of Indiana. And uh, I don't know about you, but I uh, we were talking about movies before. Uh, we always talk about movies before the service starts. And it's me and Denton and Robert or whoever else is hanging out with us. We always kind of find ourselves talking about movies. 
and what we like, what we don't like, and mocking what other people like that we don't like, whatever it is. And I, I, I one of the things about me, I do kind of like uh, um, kind of artsy movies and uh, kind of indie movies and things that maybe other people don't like uh, that's not, not as much mainstream. But one thing that I really do like, what always kind of draws people's kind of gaze, like they kind of tilt their heads, like you actually like that, is I love the Fast and the Furious movies. I think it's because I like cars and I like, I like heist movies and they're kind of two together, like one big movie about cars and heists. And I don't know about you, but I love like the Ocean's Eleven movies. I love like the criminals who come up with this uh, uh, remarkable scheme, right? This ruse to steal the bad guy's money. But the problem is, is the bad guy is never really the bad guy. Like, and, and he would be the guy who's just as rich and has a lot of money. But then the, the criminals or the robbers are like, well, he's a bad dude and we're going to steal all his money and we're going to use it for ourselves. Well, like, they're the heroes. It seems kind of an oddity that we would celebrate people who break the law, Right. But that's usually what happens in heist movies. Um, but they're popular. There's a reason why they make these movies is because they're popular. People like when the characters come up with clever schemes, right? Uh, I was watching the newest Mission Impossible movie recently, and always in the Mission Impossible movie with Tom Hanks, I mean, Tom, Tom Cruise, there's always like that moment in the movie where he has this this major scheme, this clever scheme he came up with, him and his team, and the, and the bad guy is always caught by surprise, right? And Ethan Hunt is always more clever than the bad guys. And, that, and that, 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 people like that. They always like to see the, the hero do use some creative and clever scheme to kind of win the day. But another person in real life, this is not a movie, and he, he, was, he was kind of lived, he was born in Indiana with John Dillinger. You know who John Dillinger was? He was a, a bank robber. And there was actually a movie that was made in, I think, in 09, and Johnny Depp plays John uh, Dillinger. And uh, in 1934, this is March the 3rd, 1934, uh, Dillinger was a bank robber. Like he, he spent a lot of time in his youth in prison, and he learned while being in prison how to rob banks. And so while he was in prison, when he got out, he's like, I want to be a professional bank robber. That was exactly what he wanted to do, right? Uh, and he learned the skill from uh, a fellow inmate. And these professional bank robbers, they taught Dillinger like, how to come up with these clever schemes and be very meticulous with the scheme to rob banks. And so the whole like going to a bank in person and, and kind of scouting out the, the bank inside, right? Going there multiple times as you build this clever scheme and you would have, an, a, you would have a driver who was the one who was going to drive the robbers away and he would, he would calculate and he would determine down to the less than a mile exactly like where he was going to go and where he was going to pick them up. And it was very like intricate, very, very uh, scientific and very carefully planned. And this is what Dillinger learned when I was in prison. So when he, he got out, he became this very successful bank robber, him and his, his gang. Well, he was eventually caught and he went to Crown Point Jail in Indiana on March 3rd, 1934. And he said, and the reason why he was put in jail, because he was under one of his, well, there was a shootout in one of his bank robber, robberies, and he shot and killed a police officer. And so he was put in jail for murder. And he was, uh, he was put in this, this Crown Point jail in Indiana, and um, he said that he was going to break out. Now, this particular jail was the strongest jail in Indiana, it was said, and that no one could, could break out of this this jail, and Dillinger said he was going to break out. Well, if you know the history, he carved a wooden gun and used it 
to get out. She was able to break out of this jail that was considered the strongest jail in Indiana by using a wooden gun. That's how clever, that's how uh, shrewd John Dillinger was. And that's an odd thing. Because really what Jesus is talking about in this parable, he is praising a dishonest manager. That's why people struggle to understand this passage. They understand this parable. What are we as Christians supposed to get out of a story about a criminal, about a dishonest manager, a liar, a cheater? Some words that that help you uh, children here to talk about when you go home. The first word is clever. Ask your parents what clever means or shrewdness or wisdom, but Clever, I like the word clever. The word talents and the word servant. So clever, talents, and servant. Uh, Kind of the big point of this uh, sermon is, if God is good and generous, we as his faithful servants should be wise and bold for the sake of his kingdom. If God is good and gracious, we as his faithful servants should be Clever and bold for the sake of his kingdom. How would Jesus' listeners have heard this parable? If you were a first century Jew, if you're one of the disciples or the Pharisees listening to this teaching, how would you have understood this parable? How would you have responded to this parable? Something I read this week said that this this passage, this parable could be an appendix to the previous parable, the parable of the two brothers, the parable of the two sons. You have similar characters. You have a noble master. You have a wayward son or a wayward servant who wastes his master's money, his possessions. And then you have a wayward son or steward who comes to his senses and comes to a moment of truth. In the 4th century, Julian the Apostate used this particular parable, the parable of the dishonest manager, as a primary text claiming that the parable taught Jesus' followers to be liars and thieves, and all Romans should therefore see this as corrupting influence, the Bible, Christianity. They just did not understand this passage. They just thought that Jesus was encouraging cheating and lying, but Jesus is not doing that if you read it properly. How are we to respond to this unusual parable by Christ? Where Christ praises dishonesty, praises lies, praises cheating. How are we to make sense of this story of a dishonest manager? The first point is this. If you're writing notes, if you're following the sermon notes online, uh, point number A is a clever steward and a gracious master. A clever steward And a gracious master. And this point kind of covers the entire parable, verses 1 through 8. So Jesus is saying, he's preaching, he's teaching this parable to his disciples. We actually learn in verse 14 that the Pharisees are overhearing this teaching. So disciples are not the only one there. They're not the only one in the audience. There's not a clear transition from chapter 15 to chapter 16. So clearly, maybe this is a the similar context, a similar environment, a similar situation where 15 happened, that, that nothing's actually changed, that Jesus is continuing to teach. But now he directs his teaching to the disciples primarily, but the Pharisees are overhearing. This is primarily addressing his followers. And this teaching and parable is directed to them. 
So he starts off in verse 1 that there is a rich man. And this rich man had a steward or a manager. I think the best way to look at this, this scene is that this is a farming scene. This is a, this is a large uh, landowner, and he had an estate manager, someone who is, uh, who is well-skilled in money and logistics who ran his property, that ran his possessions. He was an estate manager. The way that I, uh, helped me a little bit is Joseph and Pharaoh. When Joseph was second in command of Egypt, what did he do? He managed the land and crop of Egypt. And what does he do later in Genesis chapter 41? He, they collect all the abundance grain during the time of abundance and the seven years of abundancy. And then during the seven years of famine, what did they do? They sold it. People were lacking in food and they went to where? They went to Pharaoh's uh, house to buy grain. That's why Jacob sent Joseph's brothers to Egypt to buy food, to buy grain, because there was a famine in the land. So this estate manager is not some lackey. This guy is, is skilled. He's wise. The, manager thought, the master thought well of him, thought highly of him. That's why he was in charge of his estate. That's, what, that's how Pharaoh considered Joseph, right? He, he, gave him, he was second in command of the entire land of Egypt. He trusted him with his, with his estate, with his possessions, The way that we want to see this is that as, we, as the story kind of unfolds, these debtors are tenants who have rented uh, property, had rented farmland from the wealthy man. The way back in the first century, the way that you would accumulate wealth is through land. You would buy land, and you would then let people rent your land to grow crops. And this master, this rich man, he comes to his estate manager, and he's char- and actually let me let me back forward here. There, there's people there's who have charged him. He brought they brought charges to the master, the rich man, that this manager, the steward, was wasting his possessions, was squandering his possessions. Who brought these charges? This unknown group of people, this unknown person, brings these charges to the master about this manager. Most likely, it's because there doesn't seem like there's a, an investigation that is explained that the master's reliable friends in the community have seen what the steward, what the manager was doing with his possessions and his wealth, and he brings these, these accusations, these charges against the manager. And they tell the master that the estate manager was stealing money from him. You would think if you knew that your trusted advisor, your trusted manager was cheating you, how outrageous you would feel and how betrayed you would feel. So the the master, believing the reliable friends, believing the people from the community that brought these charges against the manager, and, and it doesn't seem like the master is questioning the truth of this accusation. He believes them, and he goes to the manager and says, what is this that I hear about you? The master trusts the intel. The community thinks highly of the rich man, or they would not have brought this to his attention. The master is not an evil man who works to cheat the people. The community cares about his reputation. They hate that his estate manager is squandering his money. Wasting his possessions. So the rich man's steward is caught. The evidence is overwhelming. 
You think of videotapes, audio files, pictures. Obviously, they didn't have these things. But in our day and age, when someone, all the evidence is against you, there's, there's video evidence, there's an audio, there's a photo that shows someone doing the crime. And the manager responds not with, oh, no, 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 that didn't happen, or please, please be merciful with me. He is silent, completely silent, doesn't say anything. The master immediately fires him on the spot. He says, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. He's fired, he's sacked on the spot. He must give over the account books. And everything the steward does since this moment is illegal and not binding on the master. Why? Because the master has, dis- has removed him from his position. He has been fired. However, if you read the, car- the story carefully, the steward still possesses what? The master's account book. Therefore, he still has the account book. He's fired He's the ex-manager, he's been shamed, yet still in control of the master's account book. That is an important detail to the story. He still has possession of the master's account book, his management of report. So the manager, the steward says, what shall I do? I'm not strong enough to dig, I'm ashamed to beg. The steward doesn't attempt to, and, to win his job back. There's no pleading with with him about the history of his family. Like, my grandfather worked for you. My father worked for you. You can't do this to me. There's too much history. He doesn't say that. He doesn't plead ignorance. It wasn't me. I didn't see it. I didn't, I, I didn't know. I can't see everything. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, master, bring all those people who accused me of this crime. I'm going to confront them and confront their evidence. He doesn't say this. He doesn't present character witnesses, friends of his from the community, to stand, and, to stand and argue for him and argue for his case. The reason why he doesn't do this is because the reputation of the master is too strong. He can't be manipulated. He can't be pressured by history or ignorance. He realizes that would be a faulty move. The character and the power of the master is too high. So the steward remains silent. He basically is a confession of guilt. He knows that he did wrong. He doesn't argue that he didn't do wrong. It's safe to say that no one else knows about his dismissal. Other than those who brought the accusation, other than the master, but even the people who brought the accusations doesn't know he's fired, most likely. He even says that I lack the qualifications to be a digger or to beg. He has very little options left for himself. He's basically thrown to the streets, nowhere to live, nowhere to work. Basically, he worked on the property. So by being fired, not only did he have, no longer did he have employment, he also didn't have a place to live. He had no food to eat. And so he comes up with a solution. Uh, this is really silly. But when I was reading this and thinking through this, I was like, it reminds me of in Wreck-It Ralph when uh, Sangeev that has this moment of clarity. It's what he kind of has, this moment of clarity. He, he realizes something about himself. He's like, ah, I've got a solution. It's almost like the manager went to dishonesty manager support group, right? And just try to walk, talk this thing out. He goes, oh, I realize that I, have, there's a, I, I, I know what I can do. 
I know what I should do. I no longer am put on, I, I, when I am put out of the stewardship's house, then I must receive, they may receive me into their own house. I, let me read this again. I know what I will do so that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their own house. So his goal is to be welcomed into a new home so he can have a new place to live. So he can have now, he can have food to eat and he can have a new appointment. That's his goal. He possesses the account book. It's still unknown that he was fired, but time is running out, right? The master wants his account book back. He says, turn it in, he says. And knowing these things, knowing what he possesses, knowing what his goal is, very much like the Grinch, he thinks of an awful and wonderful plan. And you can almost see a smile coming across the designer's, this honest manager's face. An awful and wonderful idea. The idea is to convince, convince people that I am clever and can do something that will make me popular. Because again, he needs a new place to live. He needs a new master. He needs food. He's already been fired. And once that gets out, no one will ever hire him. He can't dig and he's not blind or crippled, and therefore he's ashamed to beg. So he asks, how much do you, so he asks, he summons all his master's debtors, one by one. He summons these debtors and individual meetings with these debtors. He then informs the servants of the master, the people that work for the manager, to bring these debtors to him. So obviously the servants of the masters have no idea that he's actually fired. He has no power whatsoever to summon anyone. But they don't know that. And the debtors don't know that he's fired. They think he's the estate manager. So what do they do? They come, thinking he still speaks for the master. It's an entire ruse. His assumption is, his assumption is they don't know that I've been misplaced. They don't know that I no longer speak for the master. Therefore, I'm going to use it for my advantage. So he says, how much do you owe my master? And the debtor goes, one of the debtors says, a hundred measures of oil. The steward says, take your bill and write 50 quickly. He says quickly, why? Because time is running out. Time is of the essence. And he says, your, your, your debt was a hundred? Write 50. Why is that significant? Because that was a significant reduction in debt. So significant that it's almost 500 denaries of money, meaning a year and a half of labor that now that tenant no longer has to work and pay for. That's a significant reduction. And he has the debtor write the bill in his handwriting. So it proves, and in, 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 in basically within the book, that this was agreed upon and that it's settled. And obviously, if you were someone who had such a significant debt to this rich man, and all of a sudden your debt just went down by 50%, you and your family is going to be pretty happy, right? Significantly happy. Think about if your mortgage of your house immediately went down 50%. You would be ecstatic. You would invite people over to your house for parties, celebrations. Look at the money I've saved due to the master's kindness and the cleverness of his steward. 
right? The master would get all the praise. Why? Because they owed money to the master. But the clever steward dropped the price. The master would receive his account book and notice the change in bills and ask, what is going on? But what does the master do when he finds out that this has happened to him, that he's been cheated out of his money? He obviously does it in this story twice. He may have done it more than that. The master does what? He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Another word you can say is that the master praised him. Praised him? Why would he praise someone who cheated him again? Remember, he cheated him once, and now he just cheated him again. What, would the, what, what is the master going to do now with this new information? That not only has he cheated him and he fired him, but then while, while in between him being fired and him receiving back his accounts, he cheated him again. Well, the master could have gone down to the village and the community and said, there was a mistake. There's a huge mistake. My steward was fired before he talked to you and met with you, and he gave you a significant reduction in your debt, but you have to pay back what you didn't pay because that was illegal. He had no binding authority to do what he did, but he doesn't do that, does he? He does what? He pays the price of this clever rascal's salvation. He could have thrown the steward and his family on the streets or threw them in the debt prison, but instead his gracious nature led him to accept the cost. The ruse, this is really important, the ruse of the dishonest manager was built off the gracious nature of the master. It stands or falls on that premise that constant truth. His confidence is in the master's good and gracious character. And what ends up happening is that because he was praised and he wasn't thrown in jail or he wasn't uh, called out for his dishonesty, the community will employ and house the steward due to his cleverness. And the master is praised for his generosity. The parable speaks to this trusting in the good and gracious character of God with bold action. The manager took bold action to do what he did. He, he was under, he had, his time was running out. He was urgent. He made a decision. He, he went with it. He built this ruse. He was clever. He was wise, dishonest, but clever and wise. And the parable speaks to this truth that Trusting in the good and gracious character of God with bold actions. Point number two, be bold for the kingdom of God. Be bold for the kingdom of God. Jesus then tells the story and says in verse nine, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. Here's the lesson of the story. The lesson of the story is not go out and be dishonest. The lesson of the story is not to cheat your employer, to lie. That's not the lesson. If you read this and you think that's the lesson, you are not reading the Bible right. This is not the lesson. Jesus is not promoting sin. And again, he's talking to the disciples primarily. 
While the unrighteous and the unbelievers used the means of unrighteous wealth for their own personal gain, the steward's goal was to do what? To find a place to live, to find food, to find employment. The profiting of friends for survival, that was his goal. But Jesus says, money and profits will eventually fail. Money is a product of the fallen world. But what will continue for eternity? What will, will remain into the internal dwelling? By using cleverness, by using bold action, by using profits, by using talents and skills for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says there's a reason why the sons of this age are more clever than the sons of light is because they are bold, they take action, they're clever, but they're doing it for the sake of money, for the sake of personal gain. The sons of light are not clever, they're not bold, and yet they will be doing things for the sake of my kingdom. And he rebukes the disciples and his followers for not taking bold action. Jesus says in Matthew 8, 28, 19 through 20, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We should be more clever and more wise than the sons of this age and in producing disciples than they are by personal, for personal wealth. That's the point of this parable. The heart of the matter, to trust in God's goodness and gracious nature, to use cleverness and skills and wisdom and money to boldly act for the sake of God's kingdom. That's the heart of the matter. And I think the problem that Jesus is, is calling out, I think he's calling that out for us as well, that the sons of light, his people, are lazy. The world is far more active and bold and unhonest gain or for wealth of unrighteousness than we are to produce true riches, as he says later on. The third point is this, character matters. Character matters. He continues here in verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, how, who will entrust to you the true riches? What are the true riches? These are the eternal rewards. These are investment, the true investments, the true profits to use money and talents and opportunities for the kingdom of God. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 20, treasures in heaven, to build up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. But the point here is faithfulness. We tend to worship circumstance. If I just had more money, I would give more. If I just had more talent and opportunities, I would do more. But Jesus is calling that out. He's calling out that thinking as faulty. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful with much. Basically, if you have little money and you have little opportunity and you have little skills or talents, then use that and give that. If you're faithful in that, you will be faithful with more money, more talent, more opportunities. And the point important is, is that character matters, not circumstance. Character matters. That's why Jesus, that's why Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and his outline of elders and deacons, what is the majority of things he talks about? Character. Character matters. 
There's a, um, and I think this is important for your children. Teach children now what it means to be faithful always. Don't teach them, well, yeah, when I have more money, then I'll give more. Yeah, when I have more opportunities, then I'll give or serve more. Don't teach your children that. Charge to teach them now the little money that they have, the little opportunities they have, the little talents they have, to use those for the sake of God and for his kingdom. There's a story, I wanted to tell this, um, there's a family that we knew in a previous church, and they have a little, they have a daughter, who's, uh, and, um, and they, the, the parents used to be missionaries on the field, and they've taught their daughter about missions and sacrificing for the sake of the nations, and so this past Christmas, their little daughter learned how to knit pumpkins, and know what she did with them? She sold them, and know what she did with the money? She gave them to IMB missionaries for Lottie Moon. That's an example of how to use your faithfulness with very little. She knew how to knit pumpkins. And what did she do? She used it for the glory of God. And she was a child. She was a child. Character matters. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I read this to the the guys at Fight Club on Thursday night. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Character matters. Character. If you are faithful with little, you will be faithful with much. When you prioritize true riches, meaning the things of God and his kingdom and using your money and your talents and your skills for the sake of the gospel and the expansion of his kingdom, for the sake of growing his church and building up his church, you are following and are faithful to this passage. Be faithful always. Like the parable of the talents, another parable about money. It wasn't because the guy who got one talent, the issue was, but well, if I had been given 10 like the other guy, then I probably would have invested it more. Problem is, he put it under the ground. He didn't use it. He didn't invest in it. He didn't invest his money, his talent, his skills. He was unclever. He was lazy. The last point is this. Be honest. Who are you truly serving with your money and talents? Be honest. Who are you truly serving with your money and talents? This is verse 13 here in Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters, for the one, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, really, you, you, you cannot serve God and money. No servant can serve two masters. You can't be dual employed. You can't have two jobs. You can't be a servant to two masters. And obviously, this is speaking about the context of either a house servant or a house slave. You can't be a slave of one master and then a slave of another master. That makes no sense. It's nonsense. You can't be a servant of one master and then also serve in another house. That makes no sense. It's nonsense. You can only serve one master. You only can be loyal to one master. And Jesus is using this as you cannot serve God and material wealth. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, right? Where your heart is, that's where you are. Wherever you desire, whatever your heart is, is whatever the dominion of your heart is, that is who you serve. 
Because Jesus is speaking of authority. Who has authority over your life? Who sets your course and your path? Jesus says in John 17, 3, in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the most, that is the foundational issue to this whole passage that we've read today. Are you a servant of God? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what Jesus is saying. This is eternal life, that they know you, God, that they know you, the true God, the true master, that you know your character and your works and your attributes. What you do with your money, what you do with your talents, what you do with your skills, what you do with your opportunities proves who you actually serve. You can know if someone's actually a follower of Christ by what they do with their money, their, their talents, their skills, their opportunities. It determines who they serve, right? Who is their master? You have to have Christ to be a servant of God. And you have to know Christ to be one who uses your wealth, your talents, your skills for the sake of his kingdom. To then be boldly, to boldly act for God, to trust this God who is good and generous to use your bold action for his glory. If money or talents or if money or talents or opportunity satisfies you, then we then you will take bold action to obtain those things. But if God satisfies you, then you will take bold action to bring honor to his name. I love William Carey's quote. You probably heard it before. Expect great things, do great things. Uh, I read a little bit of history about this. So he gave this in a, in a talk, in a, in a sermon or lecture in May 30th, 1792 in Nottingham, uh, England at the Friar Lane Ch- Baptist Chapel. And he urged his Baptist colleagues to enter the minis- minis- missionary enterprise by encouraging and pleading and urging them with this, qu- this quote, expect great things and do great things. This led Reverend Dr. George Carey, there's no relation, who was a former Archbishop of Canterbury, to urge Nigerian Anglicans to trust God and expect great things from God. Remember the parable that his honest manager trusts the generous goodness nature of the master that was the foundation to the entire ruse. William Carey is saying, expect great things, do great things. Why? Because he trusts in the goodness and gracious nature of God. If you're a servant of God, if you're a servant of Christ, and he is your master, for the sake of his kingdom, be faithful. Trust his goodness, trust his graciousness. And by that, be clever, be wise, be shrewd with your money, your talent, your skills, your opportunities for the sake of his kingdom. I know you all y'all pretty well, and y'all know me pretty well. And I know that some of us get caught using our cleverness, using our money, using our talents for things that benefit us. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But if that becomes the ultimate place where you use your money, you use your skills, you use your wisdom, you use your opportunities, then you are not doing, you're not investing in the kingdom of God. And you're not trusting in God's goodness. You're not trusting in his graciousness. And you're not actually serving him. And you have to ask yourself the question, 
Are you faithful with the little or the much that you have? Are you faithful? Are you then being wise and clever with what God has provided for the sake of his kingdom, for into his eternal dwelling? And through all that, are you actually believing that he is who he is? And so that's leading you to invest. I think the problem is we don't think God's good and we don't think he's gracious. So we, we just use all of our money and our talents for ourselves because we trust ourselves and we actually trust in money. We trust in our opportunities. We trust in whatever our heart is satisfied for. We trust in that so much. And so we obtain it. So it thinks that we will make us happy or joyful. But instead, if we find that actually God is what satisfies us, And his goodness and his graciousness is what satisfies us. And for his glory, we take bold action. We use our cleverness. We use our wisdom for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of his church. And only you know this if you're actually giving an effort for the sake of his kingdom. Only you know your own heart. You know if you're actually giving an effort. If you're actually taking bold action. If you're expecting, trusting a God and expecting great things. Or instead, you're just sitting on the sidelines, letting other people do that, and then being jealous and envious when they receive praise because they're using wisdom and cleverness for the sake of God's kingdom. There's a heart issue there, that you're sitting on the sidelines, but then at the same time, envious and jealous. Don't do that anymore. Stop. It's only you're the one to blame for this. Start taking bold action. Start using your cleverness and your wisdom for the sake of his kingdom. If you want to know how to do that, I think the best thing to do is either sit down with me or Denton or Robert and let us just talk through that. What are, your, what are your giftings? What are your strengths? What are your opportunities? And how can we help you use them for the glory of God? Please, we would love to have that conversation with you. We'd love to sit down and do that. We will buy you coffee. We will buy you lunch. We will buy you dinner to have that conversation. I promise you. So please do that. Please be encouraged. Please examine your heart and ask yourself, are you faithful to God? Are you trusting in God's goodness and graciousness? Are you serving him? And are you using your money, your talents, your skills, your opportunities, using clever means with those things for the sake of his kingdom? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I praise you for this parable. While difficult to understand, there is an amazing nugget of truth here a lesson that we can take from a criminal, a lesson we can take from a dishonest manager, that when we trust in you, we trust in your goodness and your generosity and your graciousness, Lord, it can impel us to take bold action for the sake of your kingdom. That requires is faithfulness to you, trust in you, Lord, and to take bold action. To think well, to, to, to think wisely, to think cleverly, Lord, for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, bring us, bring, uh, bring up to, bring, make us aware, Lord, of where we are, what, what opportunities we have. Lord, give us inspiration, Lord. Give us ideas. Give us ways to go, Lord, and to use your kingdom. Continue to rise amongst uh, us in this room, Lord, uh, uh, ideas and thoughts and ways, Lord, to expand your kingdom. Lord, we want to be a church, Lord, that celebrates when you're using the money, the talents, the skills, the opportunities of 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 your followers, of your children, and using those, Lord, for the sake of your glory and praise. What an amazing place to be when that is happening. We praise you. We pray that you would provide more of those 
those ideas, more of those, those opportunities, Lord, more of those ministries that can be started and can be birthed. We love you, Lord. We praise you. If there's anyone in this room, Lord, who is not a follower of Christ, they are serving money. They are, their master is material wealth. Their, their master is opportunities, the praise of others. Lord, I pray that you would show them that that is, uh, that is so against you, that it's following the wrong path. And Lord, I pray that you would, through your spirit, convict them of that sin. And if they're not a Christian, that they would put their faith in you and their trust in you and be redeemed and saved and become a servant of the true master, the true God, to have eternal life. They are Christians, Lord. Awaken them to this er er erroneous sin and bring them back to closeness and nearness to you. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper together.